0: Today, we have a very special day because we're going to begin a new sermon series in the book of Ruth. And uh, I don't know if you knew this or not. Here's a little Ruth trivia only one of two books of the Bible named for women. Can you name the other one? Oh, man, you guys are smart. The book of Esther is the only other book of the Bible named for a woman, and as we shall see with Ruth, it's not only that she's a woman, but she is a Gentile woman, meaning that she is not a Jew, not a part of God's original, you know, called people, his chosen people, the Israelites. And there are actually some fascinating points of connection between Ruth and Esther. Uh, Warren Wiersbe, he summed it up like this. Now, see if you can follow this thinking, but it's like, wow, this is so cool. The book of Ruth tells the story of a Gentile who married a Jew and became an ancestress of the Messiah. We're going to see that unfold in the coming weeks. The book of Esther introduces us to a Jewess who married a Gentile and was used of God to save the Jewish nation from destruction so that the Messiah could be born. How cool is that? You know, and some incredibly fascinating points of connection between Ruth and Esther. One thing that you're going to notice about this book, if you haven't already, is that it is a beautifully written piece of literature. So much so, there's this really cool story in the 18th century. Some of you were alive then. Um, there was a man named Samuel Johnson, who was once called the most distinguished man of letters in English history. And he, he, did, he did this thing. He read a copy of Ruth in a prestigious London book review club, but he did so as if it was like a new, a new work, a new book. And the, the, the club just went nuts. They were so vocal and unanimous in their praise of this new work. It was only after all of the acclaim abated that Dr. Johnson informed them that this masterpiece that they had so unreservedly endorsed was actually found in the Bible, a book that overwhelmingly they would have rejected. And so once again, reminding us that the Bible is not just great truth, it is also great literature. It's not just for us to learn, but it is also for us to enjoy. And so one of my hopes as a church family is that we learn not only to, out of obligation, because we need to, because we have to, get into God's Word, but that we actually begin to enjoy and to love to be in God's Word. Well, the title for today's sermon is, Who Will You Trust?, Who will you trust? When the trials of life come, and they will come, correct? Where are you going to turn? Upon whom or what will you lean? For the truth of the matter is, and you're going to see this slide several times today because it really is the key. Whenever we face trials, we have a choice to make. Trust God walking by faith or trust our own understanding walking by sight. And of course, you recognize probably those concepts coming from Proverbs 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. Whenever we face trials, we have a choice to make. We can trust God and walk by faith, or we can trust our own understanding walking by sight. We we can take matters into our own hands, or we can release them and place them in God's hands. And we will see this very choice played out before our eyes in Ruth chapter 1. So let's dive right in by first considering the setting of the book. It says in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah. So here we have the setting. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah. So this verse gives us the place, the time, in the situation for the book. And that's always where we need to start when we enter a new book. And uh, I've I've sent out on Facebook and through some other means those uh, wonderful Bible project videos which with the drawings and they kind of set the tone. Please take advantage of those. Those are so well done and so um, helpful in preparing for a book of the Bible. The place is Bethlehem. Now, does that name ring a bell with anyone? Maybe a Christmas bell? Here's what we know about Bethlehem. It was located five miles south of Jerusalem. Sometimes we need to be reminded about just how close Bethlehem was to Jerusalem. It was like a suburb. Its name, Beit Lachem, literally means house, bait, of bread. It was also known as Ephrath, and that name literally means fruitfulness. And so it was the house of bread and a place of fruitfulness, and it was, in fact, the birthplace of King David, And also of Jesus. But for us right now, it's important to note that it is the setting for the book of Ruth. And so the little town of Bethlehem that we'll be singing about in just a few months, right now in Ruth, is front and center. Next, verse 1 gives us the time, the time of the setting, which is the judges. The judges. This is the time, let's put it in context here, after Israel had been delivered from slavery in Egypt and after they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and after they had conquered the promised land, but before there was a king in Israel. It's that little parenthesis time between conquest of the promised land and them having a king. Now, this should have been a season of great prosperity and triumph as they had conquered the promised land. But in actuality, it was a very, very dark time in Israel's history. Why? Why? Judges 21-25, very familiar verse, but it tells us what it was like then. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I believe there's a lot of similarities between the time of the judges and the days in which we live. Everyone does what they think is right in their own eyes with the accompanying chaos that ensues. In the time of the judges, because of this, it was a time of immorality, idolatry, and war, of apostasy, of apathy, and anarchy, and it was characterized by something called the cycle of the judges, the cycle of the judges. Um, Israel would be going along and doing well, serving the Lord, but as so often happens when we are, things are going well, we kind of fall off the wagon, and we get sloppy, spiritually speaking, and Israel falls into sin and idolatry in which case God loves them and disciplines them, and so he enslaves them as a work, as an act of his discipline. Well, as they're enslaved by foreign peoples and they're oppressed, they cry out to God in the midst of their oppression, and then God raises up a judge. Now, a judge back then was not like the the person wearing a black robe and sitting on the bench and making judgments. This was more of a military leader who brought deliverance. And through that judge, God would deliver Israel Once again, bringing them to this time where they're so thankful and they're serving the Lord and things are going well. And then they start once again to fall into idolatry. And the cycle repeats itself. It gets frustrating as you read Judges. It's like, are you ever going to get it? Until we realize, are we ever going to get it? Because I'm sure as I talk about this cycle of the Judges, you can see it in your own life, right? Things are going pretty well. And so you get self-dependent rather than God-dependent, and we get apathetic spiritually, and we do our own thing until we face a crisis, and then what do we do? Oh, God, yes, where are you? He's like, well, I'm where I've always been. In God and his mercy, he brings deliverance to us, and he brings times of refreshing to us. And we're walking with God and things are going well until once again we get self-dependent and rather than God-dependent, we get apathetic spiritually and we see the cycle in our own lives repeating itself time and time again. I think one of the keys to spiritual maturity is for us to break this cycle. And regardless of whether things are going well or things are going what we would say poorly, that we are steadfast and immovable in our walk with Christ, that we are constantly, continually, moment by moment dependent upon him. Well, the situation or the crisis that Israel faces right here at the book of Ruth is famine. Famine. This is the situation they're dealing with, a crisis. For reasons not given, there was not enough food. And it could very well be due to the oppression of enemies. Enemies who would come in and steal their food and then go away. We, we talked about Amalekites last week and plundering. And perhaps that's what's going on here. And so here's the great irony at the beginning of the book of Ruth. What was the name Bethlehem? What did it mean? house of bread but there ain't no bread in Bethlehem right now. And how about Ephrath? What did that name mean? Fruitfulness. And obviously in Ephrath there is not fruit. They are fruitless. People are starving and so this is the trial being faced at the beginning of Ruth chapter 1. Raising the question once again, who are you going to trust? Who are you going to trust? When the trials of life come, and they most certainly will, where are you going to turn and upon whom or what will you lean? For whenever we face trials, we have a choice to make. Will we trust God and walk by faith? Or will we trust our own understanding and walk by sight? And put another way, we can take matters into our own hands or we can place them in God's hands. So that is the setting of the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem and Judah The place is Bethlehem, the time is the judges, and the situation is famine. Now, before we fully immerse ourselves in chapter 1, let me ask you a very important question. Pay attention. Who is the book of Ruth about? Kind of sounds like a trick question, right? Who's buried in Grant's tomb? Well, the truth of the matter is, Ruth is really about God. It's really about God. And not Ruth not even Naomi. Specifically, it's about God's sovereignty. And when we speak of God's sovereignty, we mean that he reigns over all things. And it's about his providence, meaning that he directs all things. And it shows us how history is really his story, even to the tiniest of details. We're going to see this played out so vividly in the book of Ruth. That's really what Esther is about for that matter as well. However, on a human level, Ruth chapter 1 is about a woman. And once again, not even Ruth primarily, but a woman named Naomi and her choices. Ruth chapter 1 is about a woman named Naomi and her choices. Specifically, we're going to look at three things. The chapter breaks down into three sections. Naomi's wrong decision, Naomi's wrong counsel, and Naomi's wrong attitude. So you already get the idea, and you can see that Naomi is not going to be a positive example of how to make choices in the midst of trial. Rather, in many respects, she's going to show us what not to do, what not to do when we face trials. So let's first look at Naomi's wrong decision in verses 1 through 5. Let's go back to verse 1. It says, And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. Now, I don't remember much from Hebrew class and seminary, but I do remember in a name like this, you've got a kind of Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So what we have here is an Israelite family of four. We've got a mom named Naomi. Her name means pleasant. We have a dad Elimelech, whose name means my God is king. And we got two squirrely kids there at the bottom with bad haircuts named uh, Machlan and Kilion. Now unfortunately, Naomi, pleasant, and Elimelech, my God is king, they're not going to live up to their names. Confronted with the trial of severe famine, they make the choice to pack up, to leave Bethlehem, and to move to a place called Moab. On the east side of the Dead Sea, it was about a 50-mile journey from Bethlehem. So not, not incredibly far, maybe here to Traverse City, but the fact of the matter is they didn't have cars, right? And so to travel 50 miles, likely by foot, maybe some beasts of burden to help, it, it was still a, an arduous journey to go from Bethlehem to Moab. And while Moab was not far from Bethlehem, it was in fact a world apart, as different from Bethlehem as night is from day. They're inhabitants in Moab. They were known as Moabites, and they were descendants of Lot. Remember the story of Abraham and Lot back in Genesis, and there was this really dark, twisted account in Genesis 19 of how um, Lot's daughters got him drunk and slept with their father, becoming pregnant, and that's where the Moabites come from. The incestuous union of Lot with his firstborn daughter. So think about this Moab was both Lot's son and his grandson, right? Which set a very unholy trajectory for these descendants. Further, the Moabites were enemies of Israel. They were enemies of Israel. There's a, a story in Deuteronomy in Numbers of how the, the Moabites mistreated the Israelites when they were sojourning, when they were being led out of the exodus, and the Moabites were not helpful. They would not provide resources for them. And then during the time period of the judges, they would actually invade Israel. And then if all this weren't enough, Moabites worshipped the god Chemosh. Moabites worshipped the god Chemosh, a demonic entity which demanded human sacrifices and all kinds of immorality. You put it all together, and God says of the Moabites in Psalm 60, verse 8, Moab is my washbasin. I, I tried to think, what, was, what, what does that mean? Moab is my washbasin. I, I think what he's saying is it's that ring of bacteria around your bathtub, right? That's how God viewed the Moabites. Disgusting, good for nothing, and so then why would Elimelech lead his family to Moab? Well, because apparently there was food there and there was none in Bethlehem. But it does raise the question, was it right for Elimelech and Naomi to move their family to Moab? Was this a right choice? And through Western eyes, we might say, well, sure, what's the big deal? People move all the time for, jo- for jobs and for different reasons, and especially to take care of their families. A man's got to do what a man's got to do, and certainly he needs to feed his family. But I think we need to view this situation not through our Western eyes, but rather through Hebrew or Jewish eyes. And through Hebrew eyes, the promised land, the land had sacred significance relating to God's presence and God's covenant. It was not to be taken for granted. It's not like Wexford and Masaki County, right? Which wonderful counties, but it's not, this is different. At the end of the day, the promised land was a gift from God to his people. It was an expression of his covenant faithfulness, dating back all the way to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 which is what made the exile so devastating when Babylonians and Assyrians came in and forcibly removed God's people from the promised land. That's really what was so devastating about that whole experience. And so through Hebrew eyes, especially post-exile looking back, to voluntarily turn your back on that land, even in a time of famine, would be in essence to turn your back on God and his covenant and his people. Now, I, I get it. I understand why Elimelech and Naomi did this, trying to save their family, but they are, in fact, showing us something here. They are living out the truth that whenever we face trials, we have a choice to make. We can trust God walking by faith, or we can trust our own understanding and walk. By sight, I think it's fair to say that Elimelech and Naomi trusted in their own understanding and they walked by sight, taking matters into their own hands rather than placing them in God's hands. They voluntarily left the land. They voluntarily left Bethlehem. They voluntarily left God's people, turning their back on God's land, God's covenant, and God's people. And as we might expect, things did not go well. Things did not go well for this family in Moab. As they lived amongst the people that worshiped Chemosh and fought against Israel. We read in verse three, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now, becoming a widow is tragic in any culture, and some of you know that painfully firsthand. But to be a widow in this time and culture had some extra challenges attached to it. They they had no social security. They had no pensions or retirement. They had no life insurance. To have no husband meant to have no means of support. Except what did Naomi have still? She had her two sons, and that's something. She wasn't alone, and she had hope for some means of support. And then it says in verse 4, These two, the sons, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. So, Naomi's two sons take Moabite wives. Is that a problem or not a problem? It's a big problem in God's eyes. It's a big problem. For back in Deuteronomy, he instructed the Israelites concerning foreign wives that... You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Church, you get the idea that God cares a lot about who his people marry. It was true then and it is still true today. Marriage is arguably the second most important decision you will ever make in your life. The first being your decision to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so it says in the New Testament, lest we think this is simply an Old Testament concept, in 2 Corinthians 6.14, church, young people, listen carefully to me. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. No matter how handsome, how beautiful, how fun, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? Why does God care so much about who you marry? Here's why. Because if you are truly a child of God, how or why would you become one flesh with someone who does not share in common with you the most important thing in your life? Let me say that again. Because if you are truly a child of God, how or why would you become one flesh with someone who does not share in common with you the most important thing in your life? Because the simple truth of the matter is light cannot fellowship with darkness the way that marriage is intended to be. And the truth is, listen carefully, some of the hardest, most uncomfortable conversations I have had as a pastor have been when engaged couples come to me and they're unequally yoked. And they want me to marry them. And it leads me to have to tell the believer who ought to know better that I can't participate in their marriage. And they get offended and they get mad. And I'm the people pleaser that I am. I get discouraged. It's a horrible conversation, but it's absolutely biblical. And it's for your own good and for the glory of God's kingdom. Well, sadly... Um, Naomi's difficult situation gets much worse in verse 5 where we read this. And both Machlan and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Man, this woman's going through it, isn't she? Things have now gone from bad to worse to desperate. She lost her husband, and now she has lost her two sons, leaving her with absolutely no income and no support. She and her daughters-in-law will most likely be doomed to a life of poverty, of just begging, of scratching, of just trying to get by, which leads to the second main section in chapter 1, which is Naomi's wrong counsel. In verses 6 through 18. It's one thing to make your own wrong decisions, but it's a totally another thing when you lead others to make wrong decisions. Which is another sad part of Naomi's story. Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on on the way to return to the land of Judah. That phrase, the Lord had visited his people and given them food, but Naomi missed that because she and Elimelech had trusted in their own understanding, walking by sight and taking matters into their own hands and now Naomi is so desperate in Moab that she has to go back to Bethlehem. The hope was that maybe, just maybe, there would be some distant relations back in Bethlehem or some old friends that would take pity on them. These three widows with no means of support. And so they packed up what was left of their lives in Moab and they prepared to travel the 50 miles back to Bethlehem, once again around that northernmost part of the Dead Sea, back to the Promised Land. But before they left Moab, Naomi Naomi has something she wants to say to her daughters-in-law. And we read it in verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, "'Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me.'" The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So Naomi is giving these grieving young women an out. She's given them an out. You see, if, if they stay behind in Moab, they could likely remarry and then be taken care of by their new husbands. They could start over and begin a brand new life. But, but if they go with Naomi... Chances are that they're going to be doomed to a life of poverty, scratching and clawing just to get by. And so we read the response of the ladies in verse 10. They said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. I file that word bitter away in your mind, because we we're going to come back to it in just a few minutes. But what, essentially what Naomi is saying to her two daughters-in-law is this, it's no use staying with her. Because she isn't having any more marriable sons anytime soon. So their best bet is to stay here in Moab and to start a new life without her. Which, man, more and more tough decisions. Decisions which have huge consequences. Painful decisions. We've been there, haven't we? I wonder if you were Orpah or Ruth, what would you choose? What would you choose? What will Ruth and Orpah choose? We read in verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Goodbye, essentially. But Ruth clung to her. Apparently, Orpah took Naomi up on the offer. She would remain in Moab, hope to remarry, and start a new life apart from Ruth. But it says that Ruth clung to Naomi like gum on the bottom of your shoe, right? Right? Naomi wouldn't be able to get rid of her. Ruth's response communicates deep, sacrificial loyalty. But Naomi isn't done trying to talk her out of it. She says this in verse 15. Um, Naomi says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And here, here's part of the second main point, Naomi's wrong counsel. I highlighted that phrase, to her gods. For again, through our Western eyes, what's the big deal about whether someone lives in Moab or someone lives in Bethlehem? If they live in Manton or they live in Lake City or Cadillac or McBain. But the truth of the matter is to reside in Moab would mean embracing the gods of Moab. And therefore, to experience a future appointment with God's judgment and God's wrath. This is no small decision to make to go and live in Moab and to embrace their gods. And so this is, in fact, horrible counsel with eternal significance, eternal consequences. Once again, Naomi is making decisions in the physical realm with no regard for the spiritual realm. Naomi is making decisions in the physical realm with no regard for the spiritual realm. I wonder how often we do that. I think of that that, that, that verse. There's a way that seems right to a man. Sure seems right through our physical eyes and through our culture. It seems right, but then that verse goes on to say, But the end thereof leads to death. Even giving Ruth the counsel that she should do the very same thing. Well, clearly, Naomi continues to walk by sight rather than by faith, leaning on her own understanding and now giving the wrong counsel that goes along with it. But fortunately, Ruth would not be swayed. She was steadfast and immovable in her loyalty. And we read in verse 16. Oh, this is so beautiful. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death. Parts me from you. This is one of the most beautiful passages, beautiful confessions in all of the scriptures. These are the words of a friend who is indeed faithful and true. Those are hard to come by these days, aren't they? Loyal to the end, regardless of the cost. In a very real sense, Ruth the Moabite here demonstrates more godly character than Naomi, the Israelite. We kind of found that back in our study of Jonah, didn't we? The people that you didn't think would be acting in godly ways did, and Jonah, who you would think the prophet of God acting in godly ways, he did not. Ruth acts in a godly fashion even in spite of Naomi's wrong counsel. And so this particular section ends in verse 18 where it reads, And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And I can't help but wonder what was going through Naomi's mind at that point. I imagine that deep down she was thrilled. She was thrilled, encouraged that she would have a wingman, a wingwoman. She would not have to make this journey alone. She did in fact have a faithful friend with her no matter how difficult things might become. Which brings us to section 3 in chapter 1, which is Naomi's wrong attitude. We've seen her wrong decision, her wrong counsel, and now her wrong attitude. Um, We're going to pick on Naomi just a little bit more. Look at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now, it's been 10 years, right? And people do change over that period of time. Um, Christy and I were gone for 12 years with our kids. And when we came back, we didn't look the same, did we? There's a little more of me than when I left. But the past 10 years had taken such a toll on Naomi, the woman, that it made her literally unrecognizable to the people of Bethlehem. Life had been hard on her. But we also see that Naomi had not reacted well to the trials that had come into her life. Look at verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. There's that word bitter that we ran into earlier. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Which meant what? Pleasant. When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Unfortunately, there isn't much pleasant about Naomi as she returns to Bethlehem. She is a bitter woman. And even, she's at least honest about it. She makes that confession. Naomi has chosen a wrong attitude toward her circumstances, but fortunately her story is not over. God has not given up on Naomi in church. God has not given up on you either, regardless of how many bad choices or bad counsel that you have been a part of. We read in verse 22 a sign of great hope. Where it says, "So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest." That phrase is—it's—it's it's filled with foreshadowing. It's filled with hope. It foreshadows the fruitfulness that is to come. Fruitfulness for Naomi, for Ruth, for all of Israel. God is at work. He's going to do a new thing, bringing a new beginning which we will encounter the beginning of next week in chapter 2. But as we finish today, I want to ask you this question. How should we then live? What do we do with this? I have three points. I could have had so many more, but let me just focus on these three. First of all, our choices matter. Our choices matter. Young people in particular, your choices today matter. You will reap what you sow. It's easy to think that, well, I'm young, and what I do now won't matter so much later. It's the exact opposite. The choices that you make will have consequences for years and decades to come. Uh, For good and for bad. Good choices today reap a good harvest tomorrow. Every choice that we make leads to outcomes. Therefore, we must choose carefully. And I don't know about you, but left to myself, I can make some really dumb choices. Really dumb choices. I need help. And so I'm so encouraged by James chapter one verse five. It's so it's so plain. If any of you lacks wisdom, raise your hand. If you do, if that's you, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. It's so simple, so cause and effect. Are you familiar with the phrase that's become kind of popular recently? Decision fatigue. In a lot of leadership material these days, it talks about decision fatigue, that, man, there's just so many decisions that we have to make these days. And I would argue that we, we have more decisions to make today than we've ever had to make in history. I've used that example with you before about just your, your, your phone. Which carrier, which phone, Android, or... I mean, there's just so much to choose just about a stupid phone. And that's, that exemplifies so many of the choices that we have to make in our lives today. If we're going to make right choices, right decisions, especially in the midst of decision fatigue, we desperately need divine wisdom. And fortunately, God here promises to give us wisdom if we would but ask, believe, it says, and obey. Because I think there's a lot of time God makes it very clear what we are to do. We don't like it, and so we choose a different path with, again, all the consequences thereof. So, This is important because our choices really do matter. Our lives really become simply the sum of our choices, do they not? Number two, second point, return. Return like Naomi. Naomi, who took matters into her own hands and wandered to the foreign land of Moab, the land of Chemosh, the land of Israelites' enemies. That is the picture of so many of us, isn't it? We've wandered, we've gone astray. Some of you right now, this morning, are in Moab. You're not where you're supposed to be. You know it. You've wandered from God's path. Isaiah 53, 6 says, You're you're in good company. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, it emphasizes, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus, praise God, the iniquity of us all. We've all wandered. So don't feel like it's just you. The question is, what do you do after you wander? Well, Isaiah 55 tells us. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return. Return. Return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Let him return like the prodigal son. How did the father respond in the story of the prodigal son when the, the prodigal returned home? Did he wave his face and say, I told you so. Is that what he did? No, he ran to him. The father embarrassed himself, humbled himself by running to his son, throwing his arms around him and saying, Welcome home. Let's have a giant celebration. I'm so glad. I've been waiting. I've been watching. I love you so much. I'm so happy that you're home. And so it is with God. He waits. Jesus knocks at the door of your heart. And here we see Naomi, who's been called the prodigal daughter of the Old Testament. See some similarities prodigal son went away rich, came home poor. Naomi went away rich, went to Moab, wandered in the place that she did not belong, came home poor. But now, finally, back in Bethlehem, she's in the place where God can do a fresh new work in her life. And when you return, God will do the same for you. God will do the same for you. But it is necessary that you return. Next, Our choices matter, return. Bitter or better? Bitter or better? As we've said multiple times today, we're all going to go through trials, hard trials that require of us to make choices. We're going to go through hardships and difficulties. The question is, how will you respond to those trials? Trials are inevitable. Your response is not inevitable. Your response is up to you to choose how you will respond. Chuck Swindoll, you've heard this quote before. Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it, right? I've seen people as a pastor go through very similar circumstances but respond totally differently in those circumstances. Without question, I, I don't mean to be hard on Naomi. She had great, great tragedy happen to her. But she compounded that tragedy by choosing bitterness. And church, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can choose to become better rather than bitter. As we embrace the hard biblical truth that God really does, even in the hardest of circumstances, work out all things for our good, we can choose to become better rather than to become bitter. So, our choices matter. Return. We can become bitter or we can become better. Next week, we get to see the new beginning emerge in Ruth chapter 2. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that biblical characters are real, and they fail, because we can relate to that failure. There are times I've made wrong choices, chosen to wander into Moab, Moab, chosen to go my own way and deal with the consequences thereof. And there are in times and trials where I have chosen bitterness. And so, God, thank you for Naomi. It's a hard chapter that way, but, God, we're thankful that it ends in barley harvest. And so for those who are here this morning, God, who maybe are struggling, they're, they're bitter, they're in Moab, they're in the midst of the, some hellacious trials. God, would you encourage them today with the truth that you're on the throne, you're at work, and you offer a new beginning to them regardless of what the past has been like. Would you speak that truth to someone right now? We ask in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. amen.